I am in the office of Dave Fox of the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. And just to get started, Dave, tell us who you are, uh, what are your, what's your favorite hobby, <laughs> and uh, what you do here at uh, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Okay, let's see who I, who I am. Um, I, uh, I'll just go in a little background. I was born and raised in, in San Francisco. Um, and um, uh, grew up there by the beach. I lived about my entire childhood within close walking distance of, of the beach there. Um, and um, went to school at San Francisco State University for both um, undergraduate and graduate. I uh, uh, was interested because, partially because I lived near the ocean and spent a lot of time in the ocean. I, my early interest was, was marine biology and I kind of continued that interest through my college and through my career. Uh, I came to Oregon in uh, 1981, um, initially on a short-term internship, but that turned into a job and I, I, I my initial intentions were, were to go back, but I, I never did. Um, stayed in Oregon, eventually got hired by the Department of Fish and Wildlife in, in 1989 and I've been here since, so a little over 30 years now. Um, my initial work was in for the Department of Fish and Wildlife was in uh, mapping and characterizing and understanding uh, marine habitat with with a focus on near shore ocean habitat. So the the uh, shallow water areas, uh, the the rocky shores, and then out to uh, you know a depth of maybe uh, sixty meter, eighty meter, kind of those types of water depths. So really, um, before. Uh, the program I was in started, um, almost nothing was known about the, the habitat in the, in the near shore. And there was no accurate maps or, or anything like that. So over a many year period, we, we've developed those. We worked extensively with Oregon State University and others to develop them. So that's kind of a nutshell. Wow. Um, so, so for the past 30 years here in the marine program, and we're at Hatfield Marine Science Center right now mm -hmm. uh, in your, your office, you got a beautiful view of of the bay here it's a, a great campus um and so but, but for the last 30 years you've essentially been right here uh in south beach working for the marine program and then characterizing the the nearshore ocean mapping yeah. that so you've probably seen a lot of changes in technology i'm guessing in the last 30 yeah. years uh and you've seen a lot of tell me what it was like 30 years ago looking at the ocean bottom well we um so we started um Boy, okay, well, lots of different things. Um, I'll, I'll go through kind of a, a, a very brief timeline here. I'll try to make it brief. So in, in the first couple of years I was here, we really focused on um, taking existing fishery data, so data generated by the fisheries um, and trying to uh, map that. So basically fishermen uh, fill out log books for many fisheries that's required by law. Those, those log books document catch and also document location. So, so that was kind of some initial work we did to try to understand, help us understand fish distribution. So your window of the, into the ocean was really through the, yeah. the catch of fishermen. Yeah, and then at the same, at the same time, there was a, uh, a NOAA program that had a small submarine, manned man submarine, that they would uh, have competitive grants to uh, do projects with that submarine. So. Um, actually, starting before I came here, um, some of the staff at, at 
Fish and Wildlife teamed up with Oregon State University and put in some grants. And we started doing kind of some of the first underwater exploration of the, the kind of the offshore banks. So Hasita Banks and Stonewall Banks, Coquille Banks, some of those others. We actually did work in Man Submersible in the late 80s and early 90s. So I, I was privileged to be on two of those cruises and go to, go down in the submersible. Oh, wow. So you actually got to go in yeah. the submarine down on... Yeah. So that was my first kind of... Uh, I mean, I, I scuba dove before that. So I, I, I had visual, you know, understanding of what shallow water looked like anyway, you know, with scuba depths. But that was my first opportunity to actually go down, you know, below 300 feet, 400 feet and actually see what the fish look like and what the bottom look like visually. So that was pretty exciting. Um, so that was kind of a, you know, a project that we did to help, help. And a big part of that project was characterizing habitats. Um, then a little bit after that, uh, the first Rocky Shore strategy of the Territorial Sea Plan was being developed. So we, we became kind of the primary uh, kind of biologists that were involved in that project. So we did a pretty extensive job of, of inventorying rocky intertidal habitat along the Oregon coast. So we basically walked all the habitat. We did some quantitative research projects. We did some mapping um, of the rocky intertidal. So this is kind of on the, on the shallowest side of, of the marine environment of, of the intertidal areas. Um, so that takes us into the kind of the mid nineties, um, right at that same time, we started a, a scuba, uh, survey program where we had, um, uh, a program of, uh, staff who were, who were scuba divers in the department. And we started doing work on habitat, um, sea urchin and fish surveys in, um, in the rocky reef areas, at least those areas that were within dive depth. So we generally didn't do dive below about 60 feet or so. So kind of the shallow water areas. Um, so we did fish surveys and habitat surveys and, and sea urchin surveys. Um, we kept that up for a while. Um, while, while this was happening, <laughs> again, this is kind of mid late nineties. Um, we started getting more interested in, in quantitative seafloor mapping and we teamed up with, with Oregon State University. What does that mean, quantitative seafloor? So I, I guess, yeah, let me clarify what I mean here. So, so what I mean here is actually um, our, our seafloor work before was either um, just sampling or just seeing things visually. And you, could, you, could kinda, you knew where you were, so you could kind of map those sites. But you, you didn't really have a, a, a kind of a full understanding of the whole context of what the seafloor looked like all around you and places you couldn't see. And, so like core samples. Yeah, or like things like that, point, point samples. And, and so um, at the time, uh, uh, some of the uh, tools, some of the sonar-based tools that um, could be used in this kind of mapping were uh, kind of coming down in price and they were becoming more accessible to uh, uh, programs that didn't have, you know, multi-millions of dollars to spend. Um, and so Oregon State University um, uh, started working with, initially with side-scan sonar. Um, it's a type of sonar that gives you kind of a, uh, you could run kind of transects with your boat and get a kind of a sonar view of, of the bottom structure, what the rock relief looks like, the water depths, things like that. Um, and so, so we actually did a few side scan sonar surveys um, 
of a few kind of reef areas to start generating the first habitat maps. And while this was happening, Oregon State University started forming a C4 habitat mapping lab, which now Chris Goldfinger for, for many years now has, has run that, that lab. Um, uh, the side scan sonar was, was, was useful, but it, it wasn't quite as, uh, uh, <laughs> use the word quantitative again, it, di- it didn't give um, information that we could use to kind of model or kind of mathematically uh, do statistical analysis with our biological samples to let us really pin down what are the relationships between bottom habitat type and fish or invertebrates? And you need that information for management of species. Yeah, and- yeah. I mean, ultimately, that kind of information gets used to figure out population sizes ah, okay. of species so or, and distribution. But, but really, it's kind of um, you understand what kind of habitat um, different uh, abundances of a certain species might live in. And then you map all that habitat and you can kind of figure out an overall abundance of that species from that. Which is it's really a wealth of information that goes into understanding these species. I don't think yeah. a lot of people quite understand that all the different tools and right. different resources and yeah. angles, really, that, that fisheries managers are, are looking at species. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And, then, and, and then so an, another tool started coming down in price and become available uh, it called multi-beam sonar. And um, what, what multi-beam sonar is, is, is kind of the name implies the word multi-beam. So a normal sonar on a boat is kind of a single beam. It's, it's you know, the, the boat uh, instrument sends down a sound wave, it bounces off the bottom, it comes up, and, uh, and from that, it, it uh, translates that into a water depth. So you know the right. depth under your boat. Um, so it's just kind of point data. If the boat's driving along, you could maybe string those points together and, and, and create a line of, of what the water depths are. What multi-beam sonar does is um, the instrument is is set up so there's actually many sonar beams that are, that independently are able to uh, uh, kind of send down the sound wave, kind of uh, measure the depth at a kind of a really small part of the bottom. So multi-beam sonar might have like 110 beams in it. And so as the ship drives along, Rather than rather than getting a bunch of points along a line, it actually maps the whole swath of the bottom, and so the the, the sonar might be mapping um, a uh, you know I don't know a two hundred wide two hundred meter wide swath with with depth data for every uh, well if there's a hundred say a hundred beams it'd be depth data about every two meters right so this is how we're meter. actually able to effectively get those yeah, so beautiful bathymetry maps yeah so basically yeah from that you could get all the information on what the rocks look like what the structure is yeah. so it's not only depth but it's really the detail of all the kind of topography of the bottom which is of interest to surfers yeah as yeah. as well I should I should add in in my background that that I I actually started surfing Ocean Beach in San Francisco in the early nineteen seventies. Um, you completely eliminated like one of the most interesting yeah, the parts. Thing, yeah, about about you, Dave, is so that I'll, you're, I'll, you're an avid surfer. I'll, div- I'll I'll divert a little bit to that. So um, so those of you familiar with Ocean Beach in San Francisco, like if you go there now, it's hard to find a day where there wouldn't be two hundred people in the water. Um, uh, when I started surfing there, it was really when people were just kind of getting 
buying wetsuits and thinking about beaver cold, tail wetsuits. Yeah, yeah. My first wetsuit was just a top, a dive, an old dive top with a beaver oh. tail. Um, it would just get to the point where people were were accepting that cold water surfing was actually a thing, and you could actually do it. Um, and people surfed there back even to the early 50s but right. but really it wasn't until the early 70s that wetsuits were starting to become available and O'Neill was just designing his first wetsuits and um or at least you know kind of production wetsuits um and anyway started surfing there and and it, it's funny when I when I whenever I tell people I've, I've surfed for that many years everybody assumes oh you must have been in the longboard era Actually, the early 70s was a strict shortboard era. You would never find anyone surfing a longboard. Everybody everybody had a shortboard, and it was kind of taboo almost to, to have a longboard. Wow. So I learned, how to, <clears throat> I learned how to surf on a shortboard and, and pretty much always have. Um, so anyway, yeah, in the early, in, in the early 70s, there was um, one surf shop in the city, um, there was probably 40 or so people that were really kind of avid year-round surfers there. So it was, so back then it was a crowded day. Back then was like what we considered a crowded day today at South Beach. You know, if there's right. like six guys in the water with you, that's pretty crowded. Right. Um, <laughs> you'd paddle away if there was eight people because you right. didn't want to be at the peak. Dave is not, not spoiled at all here, are you, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, yeah, I, I started surfing then and, and uh, actually had a long hiatus when I didn't surf in my life from, you know, when I first moved to Oregon, I kind of wasn't surfing at that point and didn't take up surfing again until uh, oh, probably the late 90s, something like that. I can't remember exactly when um, and have, have been doing it ever since. Um, with much, so back to the late yeah, 90s, yeah, multi-beam, so, I think yeah, that's where we're at. Right, sorry. So the multi- but no, that's great. I, I, wanna, I want our listeners to understand your rich surf history, uh, <laughs> and we, we can talk more about that too um, later so, on. So anyway, um, multi-beam t- tool uh, became more available. It, it was something that was too complex. We couldn't do it ourselves, but, but OSU developed good capability to do it. There was also plenty of kind of contractors out there where we could contract to do it. So we had some some surveys done to start creating these really detailed maps of rocky reefs, and then um, OSU was kind of slowly, as money became available, doing it as well. Um, and then, uh, but but really, if you look at our near shore area, even by the time we got to about two thousand five, two thousand six, really only about five percent of the area was mapped, and that was that took a lot even to get to that point. Um, but soon after that, um, another little bit of side story. So with the uh, side stories are great. Oh. With the uh, big recession that happened in in you know kind of two thousand five two thousand six through eight or so that time frame, the uh, the federal government um, had this kind of disaster relief program where 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 money was kind of put out in, into the. Uh, you know, kind of to basically generate jobs and, and, you know, keep people working. One of the disaster relief uh, uh, pieces was actually turned out to be a, a kind of a multi-million dollar grant to Oregon State University to do uh, C4 mapping. So to do multi-beam sonar surveys. Um, and, um, we, you know, we worked with OSU kind of extensively and, you know, and various other people as well to actually make that happen, make that grant happen. And, um, and OSU uh, basically uh, from that grant was able to take that percentage of mapped area from 5% up to about 50%. 
So that's kind of where we are now. And most of that 50%, we, we, we help OSU prioritize the areas. We focused on the rocky areas. So the areas, most of the areas that aren't currently mapped with multi-beam are, are areas, you know, that are kind of pretty flat, sandy areas that don't really, re, don't really need the detailed mapping that, that, that you would need to do on a So today we have about 50%. It's about 50%. Of our near shore. Yeah. And, and when but, we say near shore, are this, we talking zero to three miles? Yeah, in this case or? we're talking about the state's territorial sea, okay. which is zero to three miles. So zero to three miles, we've got about 50% of that understood. Most of that rocky yeah. habitat. And yeah. and just for you know the sake of our listeners, why is it that we care about rocky habitat more? Well, the, the rocky habitat has the, the highest kind of concentration of, of fish, um, highest diversity of fish. Um, it's also kind of the most productive areas. They tend to be ecological hotspots. So not only do you get a lot of fish, which is important to fisheries, but... But you get all the invertebrates and algae, kelp beds in some cases. Seabird nesting colonies are concentrated around there. There's, you know, lots of marine mammal use, so they, they just t- tend to be ecological hotspots. Um, and so we want to understand those not just for kind of fisheries purposes, but just for also general conservation purposes for the marine environment. The broader ecosystem, yeah, ecological exactly. reasons, right? Yeah. Not to say that the sandy bottom isn't right. Important. Yeah, the sandy bottom is important too, but but it. Doesn't really require that some some of that detailed sonar work right. that that the the rocky areas do. Maybe unique structure to it. Yeah. Is, yeah. So anyway, um, that was going on um, around two thousand or so. Um, we uh, well, f- the main reason really is we, we saw we we were doing you know some sand, scuba surveys, but that's super limited in depth and and most of the um, habitat and fish and other animals you're interested in surveying go well beyond that 60 foot water depth we were limited to with our dive surveys. So we acquired a ROV, which is a remotely operated vehicle. So it's basically an underwater um, vehicle with a video camera or now probably four cameras or five cameras um, that is, uh, it's tethered to a boat, but it could be maneuvered kind of individual independently from the boat um, you know, in under the limits of its its tether, which we call an umbilical. And this was um, when that you guys got this? We got it, I think, in 1999, actually. 99. And yeah. this is the sea cow? Yes. Okay, the yeah. one that we, the, ye- the, the yellow. Yeah, the yellow ROV. Right. And and so we started developing that tool as a as a habitat and fish survey tool and have been using it ever since for those for those purposes. Um, and uh, I was uh, the marine habitat project leader at the time, so it was, it was kind of the the crew that was kind of developing this tool. Um, and then since then, at least in my own career, in, in, in the early 2000s, I, I, uh, I took a promotion, I guess you call it a promotion, um, which, which instead of just, just managing marine habitat research, I, I, I now manage uh, about a third of the marine program. So all the, all the projects that do either fish monitoring or ecological monitoring or habitat monitoring in, in the marine environment or under me. So I don't, I'm, I'm not really out in the field doing the field work anymore. So I'm more managing people and programs and dollars. And That's like crazy, <laughs> amazing uh, career story arc and a history of kind of how we've mapped the, the ocean yeah. and understand what we do. And your personal journey too. You now sit in an office with a giant Right. screen and I walk in and there's a spreadsheet on it not <laughs> not pictures of the seafloor or yeah, video but, ROV work now Dave works with 
gosh, I don't know how many people here in the Marine program well, are doing that type people, of work. Yeah, people, there's, there's about 38 people under me. Um, but we have a, a lot, we, we have, you know, at least four projects that are all doing under type, different types of underwater survey work. We have uh, many different kinds of underwater camera systems now. Um, not just, before it was just the ROV, but now we have all kinds of uh, what we call landers. We have sleds. We have some mini ROVs. Uh, some of our projects are getting into um, UAVs or drones to do uh, aerial survey work. Um, so we're, we're definitely expanding in our, in our survey capabilities and, and different types of tools that we use. And, you know, for our listeners out there, this is some really awesome work they're doing and getting some really cool imagery. And you can actually follow uh, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife's Marine Program on Instagram. And then I believe they're, they're on Facebook is like their, their conservation. You can see some really cool mm-hmm. imagery that they're getting from the seafloor with all these different tools and devices. I believe the... Oregon Marine Reserves program has a nice website that has some great videos on it. I yeah. think that's OregonMarineReserves.com. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really cool. And it's really neat to, to see where we are today compared to a, kind of where we were. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on and, and, and kind of talk about uh, your history here is that one of your surveys uh, was, was a unique story. Uh, and I believe it's been dubbed the Aloha Cruise. And this was a, a, a survey, I think, of placer minerals or the seafloor. And uh, uh, to set some context, I'll let you you help our listeners understand. This was um, a research trip that you were on uh, as part of the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Is that right? And uh, you were in the south coast. Yeah. In Port Orford, off the coast of Port Orford area. Is that yeah. It? I mean, it's part of it. We were in other areas as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and for our listeners, Port Orford is on the south coast. Um uh, characterized the south coast is characterized with lots of offshore rocks and and reefs really gorgeous area of the coast uh, port orford has a small fleet fishery uh boats that they put in and out of the water every day and so they're a little bit smaller and um they're very uh, protective of their fishery there and it's and uh and this is a story of of activism and uh researchers uh clashing uh, a little bit, and uh, I, I, I'm just gonna let Dave take over because I've heard this story a few times, but I've never, I, I, I've never actually heard the full story start to finish. Okay. And so the, the the whole reason why I wanted to, one of the whole re- reasons I wanted to, to talk to you today was to kind of capture that story uh, from your perspective. And so, let's talk about the Loha Cruise. Okay. Um, I'll I'll start by just saying this. This was in 1990, so that's 19 years ago. So. Uh, my my order of telling this and my memory might not get every detail right, and I may have to kind Please of embellish it. <laughs> I might have to kind of divert <laughs> and backtrack here and there because uh, it's hard to remember something that long ago, believe it or not. Um, anyway, so and 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 it was kind of unique for me too because I was brand new to the department at that time. I was hired in '89, and this was this happened in 1990. Um, so you were still wet behind the ears. Yeah, very much. Um, yeah, still am, I guess. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, to set some context, so uh, on the south, on the South Oregon coast, and kind of the the, the mountains around the South Oregon coast, uh, the I'm not a geologist, but the the geology is such that. Um, there are deposits of various minerals, in some cases valuable minerals like gold. The, term, the name Gold Beach, the town of Gold Beach, the reason it's named Gold Beach was because 
people were able to actually pan for gold on How the about beach. That? Go there. figure. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, so so the South Coast, um, uh, there was there's been interest in in minerals and and mining. Um, back in the late '80s, and I wasn't actually part of this. There was actually, you know, some some uh, people in 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 uh, I think academia in the mining industry and also. In state agencies, we have in Oregon, we have a Department of Geology and Mineral Industries, which, which as the name implies, is, is manages mining and, and those kinds of things. Dagami. <laughs> People hear yeah. Dagami sometimes. Yeah. That's what that is, Department of yeah, Geology Department of and Geology. Mineral yeah. Industries. So anyway, in the, in the late 80s, there was interest in, in offshore placer mining. So, so a placer deposit is kind of a deposit of, of minerals by, by river processes, basically. And that's what, when you pan for gold on a river, that's placer gold mining. Or if you pan for gold on the beach, like a gold beach, that's a placer deposit. Gotcha. So because all these deposits occurred in, in, uh, on land, you, you know, the idea was, you know, those, those deposits are probably offshore as well. And there was very little known about them, but in other parts of the world, there was kind of a growing interest in, in offshore placer mining. And, you know, Alaska is a, an example where that occurs. And we're even hearing now about like deep sea mining. Yeah, even and deeper. Stuff for but rare even minerals. Yeah. So, so what, um, there was some really preliminary data that, that showed that there were, there were deposits of, um, the mineral that titanium's derived from and the deposits of chromium and maybe even some really, you know, kind of smaller, less concentrated deposits of gold and, and platinum. Um, but there was nothing known about the extent of those deposits, how deep in the sediment they were, what the mm-hmm. actual concentrations were. Um, so because of that growing interest, and that interest was also from the federal government, from the Bureau of Mines and, and, and um, USGS, or US Geological Survey, um, uh, basically federal money became available and I, I wasn't involved in the grants or anything, so I don't know the details of that, but, but anyway, federal money became available to do a, uh, basically a, a, a research trip on a, in, you know, sampling from a vessel, um, to try to at least generate some initial data to try to answer those questions. You know, what, what are the deposits? What do they look like? What's their concentration? And ultimately to, so, so mining people could figure out, you know, would it be economically feasible to actually, you know, extract the deposits or not? Um, And and so, but really the purpose of the cruise was to to develop that preliminary data. Um, While this was going on, um, uh, we at Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife became aware of it because there was another state agency involved and and they, you know, let us know this was going on. And we, we kind of raised our hands and said, well, wait a minute, there needs to be kind of an ecosystem component to this too. We need to, we need to sample the biology and, and, and habitat and figure out if there ever was any kind of mining, what, you know, we need data to figure out what those environmental impacts might be or whether or not, you know, a decision needs to be made of, of even if should the mining even ever occur because of potential environmental impacts. So, How responsible of our state agency yeah. to be looking out for so, the, the anyway, interest of the anyway, ecosystem. I, I, I don't, I, so anyway, there was discussions and talk and, and, and eventually the, the project was expanded to include a, a biological sampling component. To it, so it's going to be you know it's a joint uh, it was a joint kind of research project between geologists and and biologists basically to figure out the geology and, and biology of, of of some areas off offshore, and so so areas off of 
Cape Blanco, Port Orford area, and then a little further south of that areas off of Gold Beach were kind of identified as the as a as a kind of the likely hotspots for these deposits. Um, so a, a bunch of cruise planning was done to uh, you know design sampling protocols and figure out what kind of gear needed to be used and kind of arrange all that, and and also to select a, a research vessel, and. Um, one of the projects, or one of the kind of the main projects, really, that the geologists were going to do was to take some deep cores of the seafloor um, to try to figure out the depths of the deposit. Because that was one of the most important data points that was missing was, are these deposits just on the very surface? or Do they go down 20 feet? Do they go down 30 feet? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they uh, uh, needed to, first of all, find some somebody that had a... a a coring device. So a coring device is is a would be is a sampling instrument where there's essentially a big pipe that's driven down into the sand, and then you pull that up, and there's a long cylinder of sand in there that that's your core. Um, and they needed a coring device for the sampling design that could do at least, get down at least thirty feet, um, which turns out there's not very many of those, and they're really expensive to use and. And really, the primary industry that even has had used those up until then was mostly the oil industry for offshore oil okay. exploration. Um, so it turned out that um, in kind of a search for that all over the country, there was one program in the University of Mississippi that had that kind of coring device and also had the kind of the staff, you know, the, the crew to actually run it and knew how to use it and such. So they were kind of brought into the project. So we had... Uh, uh, four or five people from the University of Mississippi. It's kind of like a professor and a bunch of graduate students. Um, and um, uh, USGS was heavily involved. There was several people from there on the boat. Bureau of, Federal Bureau of Mines was on it. And so on the biological side, it was a team of uh, two people from ODFNW, uh, me being one of them, um, a seabird biologist from... Portland State University and kind of a fish biologist for, from Oregon State University. And then Greg McMurray was on it as the Department of Geology of Mineral Industries. Okay. So they, so once they figured out all the, the gear and equipment... They so you've got geologists, you've got biologists right. and ecologists on exactly, there. Yeah. People there to, to look for minerals, people there to characterize the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and it was fairly, a very comp, because there's so many, there's actually 16 scientists altogether on, on the boat on the boat very and you know everybody doing kind of different things so it was a big vi- boat yeah yeah that was it was going to get into that but it was kind of very complex operation because so many different things going on so much different so many different kinds of gear um that you know it was, it was thoroughly planned out ahead of time um <clears throat> but one of the things that we needed was the right kind of boat right <clears throat> so we needed a big enough boat you know to, to handle all the people and equipment which you know there's plenty of boats that that could do that but the limitation is with, with the coring device we needed a boat with an a-frame that was at least 30 feet tall so that's the a-frame is a large structure on the back of the boat that uh, has uh, kind of a pulley that's connected to a winch where you haul, where you lift gear up and down so to lift the coring device and make it clear the deck you needed you needed an, you needed this a-frame yeah. device to be at least 30 feet tall right right so we did a search for that and there was essentially one one boat on the west coast that was available and able to do that, and it, it was named the Aloha. Okay. The, 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 so that was the name of the boat, Aloha. 
it wasn't from Hawaii. It was actually from San Diego, but <laughs> it was called the Aloha. The Aloha. So this is <coughs> yeah. how the, the name of the cruise was dubbed Aloha Yeah, cruise. the Aloha Cruise. Got it. Um, anyway, it was about a 150-foot boat, somewhere in there. Um, very capable boat, but it, one, one thing that was interesting about it, you know, it had, it had the appropriate size A-frame. One thing that was interesting about it was um, it, the boat design was kind of a, a typical design that's used in the Gulf um, for kind of a work boat that kind of helps with oil rigs and things like that. And so the characteristics of the boat, it has a really large back deck, a big flat back deck, you know, that which is great because you get arrange gear, arrange people, do it's things. A lot of people. On yeah, the... a lot of people. And, but, the, but the back deck is really low to the water. So typically in a boat designed for rough seas, you don't have a back deck that's right. really, really low. This this back deck was, you know, maybe a foot or two above above the water. So not exactly safe and Well, I I would I would say it was, you know, we were in summer summertime, fall. Like yeah. That. So so it, the boat could handle handle rough seas, but one characteristic of it was when there was any swell at all, the back deck was almost always a wash. There was okay. always like this layer of water just sweeping back and forth, you know, a few inches deep. But as the boat rocked, this water would just sweep. So you couldn't set anything down on the deck because it would just get swept away. swept away. It wouldn't necessarily get swept off the boat, but it would just get swept away from you and just be moving back and forth the whole time. Uh, so it's just kind of one of the conditions of the boat. You're always kind of standing kind of like in. Sloshing a couple, scene. Yeah, and this sloshing water at all times. Um, the other characteristic of the boat, which was unique to me is is most most boats that you know work boats that have winches and things like that on them everything's hydraulically driven um and um, that's just the, the typical way they're set up this boat all the winches were pneumatically driven so they were driven by air pressure rather than hydraulics and one thing if you use pneumatic tools they're they're super loud right yeah. so a pneumatic winch if you imagine a winch that's you know four feet across and three feet in diameter whatever it's a big thing a the pneumatic hose going to it, it's like six inches in diameter oh my gosh and they are there it's like a jet engine taking off they're so loud deafening yeah. so the whole time on the boat you had to wear a hard hat with with ear protection anytime you're on the back deck and the only way you could communicate was to scream at each other at the top of your lungs. <laughs> and even then, you had to wait for a little quiet period. To even I was just like that. trying to imagine these scientists yeah. Yeah, on the just, back of this sloshing deck with yeah, hard just, hats. Just screaming, just screaming at each other. At each other over yeah. these pneumatic winches. And part of the reason, I think, is because this vibracore, the, the, the coring device was called a vibracore. It was pneumatically driven. So I think <laughs> they, brought, they brought their coring device. They brought all their winches on. So... And then they brought an air compressor that was the size of a van, basically. <laughs> biggest air compressor I've ever seen. Um, you know, and all these giant pneumatic hoses. But anyway. Um, so, anyway, so that's, that's kind of the backdrop. Um, and um, we, we, we kind of staged everything out of Coos Bay because that was the, the nearest port that was kind of big enough to handle that size boat. Um, loaded all the gear. Um, so while this was happening, there was... There was a lot of controversy starting to be, be developed because, uh, you know, the fishing fleet, for example, and also kind of environmental community was, you know, very opposed to offshore plaster mineral mining for pretty obvious reasons because it's pretty, pretty disruptive to the benthic environment and, you know, pretty significant impacts could be caused by it. And for our listeners, I think there's, there, you know, today there is, there's actually 
a moratorium on right. any mining in our in our near shore. Yeah, waters. for Oregon. Yeah, I don't know about other states. No, no, that's actually yeah. not true for other states. We have a rule here in Oregon for that, but yeah. still open in California and Washington. Okay. In fact, Surfrider volunteers and members in those states are working on campaigns oh, okay. on that right okay. now. So. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting. Anyway, since yeah, yeah. So of course there was you know a, a, a lot you know. So we started hearing rumors about. You know, uh, Port the fishermen at Port Orford, and you know, in my opinion, rightly so, we're getting very concerned about this. Um, and then we started hearing rumors that Greenpeace was going to get involved, and um, you know, there would be some kind of possibly some kind of protest or some kind of action. <laughs> Nobody knew what it was. It was all rumors. Um, you know, and and you know, in, in our minds, and maybe maybe I was naive at, my, at the time, but in my minds, I would it'd be like. We're researchers. We're scientists. We're trying to right, get information to help the environment. How come? How come that's going to be protested? You know, by an environmental organization. It didn't make it, to at least uh, to at least the biologists on the boat. It didn't make sense. But anyway. But you um, were there for a different reason than sure. Yeah. Say the geologists that were yeah. looking. But at even the geologists, they were academic. They were scientist geologists. Sure, they right. weren't mining people. So you you would yeah. characterize the boat as uh, innocent bystanders. Well, yeah, I, I guess <laughs> for the most part. Um, anyway, so. So, so we you got everything loaded. We took off from Coos Bay. Um, and Coos Bay, uh, our first stop was going to be off of Cape Blanco, which is, which is near Port Orford. So that's like a 50-mile or so uh, run from Coos Bay. Um, so it's going to take several hours. The boat's not that fast. Um, so we kind of got settled down on the boat. And we're, we're cruising south and, you know, talking about the sampling with each other and talking about maybe some of these rumors and such and... And, um, and how old were you at this time? Um, oh, how old was I? I was like 30. So in your 30s. 32, yeah. And most of the yeah. researchers on the boat, were they like various ages? It was various ages. Kind of, yeah, it was all the way from kind of graduate students who were the youngest. Up oh, to, so you had grad students on the boat. Yeah, too. well, the, some of those geologists from University of Mississippi. Okay. And then there were some, uh, you know, old, uh, people that were seasoned, you know, people that were well into their career yeah. on, on the boat. I, I don't know their age, but they're probably fifties, you know. So you're motoring you're motoring yeah. south towards yeah, Cape anyway. Blanca. So anyway, we're motoring south. It's kind of a pretty a pretty nice day. It was sunny out, you know, it wasn't super windy or anything. Um so it, after about uh, you know maybe an hour or so headed south or maybe a two hours, something like that, um we we started, you know, hearing People, you know, kind of a commotion and people, uh, you know, pointing out of portholes and pointing towards something and saying, hey, look at that. What's that? And and we look out and it's basically the Rainbow Warrior. So that's the uh, the the uh, it, it Greenpeace doesn't use it anymore. But at the time, that was the Greenpeace kind of signature it vessel. Sunk that boat, yeah, it, it was a, the Rainbow Warrior was, you know, kind of a sailing ship looking boat. I guess it was actually a schooner, like a three masted schooner. But it had engines too it's a very right. fast boat yeah <laughs> anyway so that was kind of the classic boat at the time when you saw the greenpeace um you saw kind of footage of greenpeace protesting whaling operations you know here would be this big green boat with a rainbow painted on it the rainbow warrior so it was very famous known you know sunk by um, the french I well believe. actually i think was that the original yeah, i think it was the original one that was sunk okay yeah this one was was this was the one that came after not the, that one, old. <laughs> the one that was sunk yeah this is yeah but this one, actually, I think at the time it was pretty new. Um, yeah. I think I, I don't think it was built new; it was converted from something else. Okay, so the uh, Rainbow anyway, Warrior, the Rainbow Warrior, the Rainbow Warrior, all of a sudden appears on the horizon, 
<laughs> and like we're just our jaws just dropped. We couldn't believe it. Oh, it's actually something's actually gonna happen. Um, and what did you think was gonna happen? Well, we didn't know, right? Yeah, we didn't know, but we knew. You know, we knew just from you know seeing footage of Rainbow Warriors, say protesting whaling operations. You know, they have zodiacs. They launch zodiacs. They buzz right. around. They try to you know block the boat or block the that people the operation things like that. You Were you know? nervous or? Not not initially, no. you know, so we just kind of watched the boat and, and it was kind of interesting because the Rainbow Warrior kind of came and, and it stayed, it stayed kind of a little bit behind us and maybe, maybe a half mile offshore from us. And it just, it just paralleled our course, you know, so it was just kind of paralleling us as we moved down because <laughs> we didn't know because some, some, you know, some, some of the operations or, or the, you know, the events they have might be more of a, they're just observing, you know, mm-hmm. like, or or they put up a banner or something like that, right. you know, a photo op, yeah, right. things like that. We didn't know what it was what, what was going to happen. You didn't know if the fire hoses were going to come. Yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, we didn't we didn't know what was going to happen. So uh, anyway, we just kind of watched it on the way down. We're like talking, oh yeah, they're actually paralleling it, and and more and more information started coming in. I, I think Greg McMurray, for example, was kind of on the radio, you know, in the boat talking to people, and 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 we started hearing that you know maybe there was going to be some kind of protest that at Orford Reef, where we were, off, off of Cape Blanco, involving, you know, the Rainbow Warrior, involving fishermen and such. And um, just as a little aside, this was always pointed out as a unique situation where, where Greenpeace teamed up with commercial fishermen in a common cause, which is unusual, um, so you at least had, at the time. So unusual. the commercial fishermen are... Or teaming up here. Yeah. They're on their way out too? Or? Well, we didn't really know for sure, but we knew it's something. There was probably okay. something going to go on. Um, anyway, so they just, they just kept paralleling us. Nothing happened. They didn't come any closer. They didn't go any further away. They just, you know, uh, st- kind of stuck ne- near us. Um, and then we um, finally get to our first um, sampling um, site uh, off of uh, Orford Reef. Again, kind of Cape Blanco, Port Orford area. Um and we start getting ready to to sample, and, and the Rainbow Warrior kind of pulls pulls up near us, but not that close. Um, and they, you know, they just kind of sit there. I don't know if they actually dropped anchor or they were just kind of, you know, milling around. And did in you like, see people on the boat? No, nah, it was it was far enough away that it, it was probably a quarter mile away, something okay. like that. I mean, you could obviously clearly see the boat, and it was a perfectly crystal clear, nice sunny day. Um, and we started trying to, you know, talking about, you know, everybody was kind of nervous at that time because no, right. nobody knew what was going to happen. The fact that it actually stopped when we stopped, that, that kind of triggered everybody. You right. Know? And so, you know, there was a lot of discussions that went on. I was kind of a kind of a low level person on the boat. So I wasn't involved. There was discussions with the skipper and the principal investigators and, and such. And I wasn't really involved in those discussions. So that's just like chatter. You're, you're... Yeah, they were off at the bridge, you know, okay. among themselves talking. And so they decided, well, let's, you know, let's just start, let's just start our sampling. And um, um, started doing things like um, getting, kind of getting gear ready and, um, <clears throat> And some other stuff, and, and, and it was kind of, you know, obvious that we were getting ready to do it's something. A bit of a production, yeah. Yeah. And um, so when that, and meanwhile, while this is happening, um, boats from Port Orford are coming out. And at first, there's just a few, and they're just kind of hanging around. They're not they're fishing boats, but they weren't fishing. You know, they were just kind of hanging around, you know, standing off pretty far, just watching. And, you know, f- first there was three or four, then there was five or six, and there was 10, then there was oh 15. Gosh. And they kept, and, you know, they kept coming. And then meanwhile, um, Green Greenpeace just all of a sudden, they launched like three or four Zodiacs. 
And so oh, yeah, the, right, okay, so let's stop right there. Yeah. Are you surrounded by all these fishing boats? Eventually, like... but not yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, everybody's just kind of milling around. It was a nice calm day. It was like, I kind of a perfect day for it. Um, so anyway, the, the Zodiacs got launched. So those are the little the little inflatable boats with uh, outboard engines oh, and, no. you know, that Greenpeace traditionally used as part of their kind of operations for either right. blocking or protesting, you know, at sea activities. So it's getting serious. And these, these Zodiacs just start buzzing around and, and it turns out they're really fast and really maneuverable <laughs> and they're, they're, they start buzzing around us and, and more and more fishing boats are, are piling up too. And then... And then the Coast Guard starts showing up. Um, first, Coast Guard helicopters, and then some of the small Coast Guard boats, eventually Coast Guard cutters. And I'll get into this eventually, but at one point there were three large Coast Guard cutters. And by, by, by cutters, I mean major ships. Oh, my gosh. There were three or four smaller Coast Guard boats, two Coast Guard helicopters, and, and, and three or four of the Coast Guard uh, rigid hull inflatables. It's kind of orange. It's like... The, the majority of the resources yeah. of the Coast Guard. It basically, yeah. <laughs> um, but that, that built up over time. But so, so eventually, this was just kind of slowly building. And we were going to, um, they were going to try to do uh, initially some of the coring, but they decided that was too complex and difficult of an operation to start with. Um, so we decided to start with some of the biological sampling. So we were going to do some grab sampling, and a, and a grab is a, is a, kind of a scoop device that you send to the bottom and it scoops up some sediment and you bring it back up and and then you 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 basically sift that you figure out what the sediment type is and you figure out what all the organisms are that live in the sediment so that was just part of our sampling plan and and so we started getting ready to uh um drop the first kind of grab sample and we had a small winch off the side of the boat we weren't using the main one off the back of the boat for that we we're using a smaller one and when we're getting ready, pretty soon the, co- the the Zodiacs come up and they just like park their Zodiac underneath, directly underneath where we would drop the, uh, the, the grab sampler, which is, you know, about a 150 pound steel device. Oh my gosh. So it is parked You're the Zodiac. You're putting the, yourself in harm's way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, there's no way we're going to actually drop, drop it, it, you yeah. know? And so that was kind of the first kind of blocking technique. And they were, they were, you know, kind of talking to us and, and they were friendly and everything. And, and, um, um, and, and, and just they say, they just like drive up and they're like, Hey, yeah. They're just like, why are you doing this? Why are you, you know, why, you know, uh-huh. and, and we're like, we're just trying to take biological samples. <laughs> just a researcher. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, Oh, explain to me why you're doing that. You know, and it wasn't really a, a serious conversation. You know, you know right, it wasn't really. Right. And also it was kind of there. You're kind of, it's hard to hear each other. You know? Right. Um, That's right. Hard hats. Yeah. Winches. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the, uh, the, uh, um, and one, one thing that was, uh, at least at the time, I don't know if this is true or not, but, but I was, I was told that one of the tactics of Greenpeace was to, in these kinds of things, was to put kind of young, very good looking women on these Zodiacs uh-huh. and that, that they, they would tend to be the least likely to be harmed or the least likely for, for the workers on the boats to want to, mm. to want to, um, interact negatively with. Mm, yes. And, very 1980s sexist. <laughs> point yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and anyway, so that's, that's kind of what it was. Hearsay strategy. Yeah. Right? Anyway, I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, it, so, so here, but it was, I mean, all, 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 pretty much all the folks on the green, on the rainbow war were young. I mean, they were all in their twenties basically. So young. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so that was happening, and and um, and in the meantime, all, pretty much all the boats that were at Port Orford came out. And there was maybe thirty, 
fishing boats and they sur- fishing boats? and they surrounded us in a circle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but it you know, it didn't really stop us from doing anything. Um No, but it's intimidating. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And if you know a Port Orford fisherman, they you know, they're tough individuals. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they were screaming at us and stuff. Oh yeah. But they were pretty far away and they were waving they were waving their fish clubs and, and screaming, but uh-huh. but you couldn't really hear what they were saying. You could just see that they were screaming. Um <clears throat> And anyway, they were kind of circling us, and, and more and more Coast Guard were getting there. And, and then some of the boats, you know, the Zodiacs were getting really close to us, and some of the fishing boats were starting to get closer and closer. And it was getting to the point where it was almost like cat and mouse, you know, where the fishing boat would, like, come right in front. And, and you know, we were on a 150-foot steel boat, and these fishing boats are, like, 40 foot. So those, right. those boats were dwarfed by the boat. Oh, yeah. Around. But they were coming, I th- what I thought was dangerously close, and, but, but, you know, they, they were maneuvering. They, no, nobody ever hit each other. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, we, you know, we talked to the Coast Guard about that, and, and so the Coast Guard put in, like, an, what they called an emergency rule. And so they put a closure, an actual vessel closure, around the Aloha that you, it would... <clears throat> So with uh, my understanding of maritime law, like boats can pretty much go wherever they want uh-huh. unless there's some kind of rule, rule put in place. Rule in place, gotcha. And so they had to actually they actually had to put in an emergency rule to put a closure, a vessel closure around um, <clears throat> the Aloha, so that they could enforce against. Yeah, the so they could enforce if something happened. And so I I can't remember. I think it was 500 yards. I can't remember what it was. It's something like 500 yards. So. So all the Porterford boats were circling about 500 yards away, you know, in this giant circle. But the the um, the zodiac the zodiacs completely disregarded that. They were just buzzing. They, care, right? they were buzzing all over the place, well within the buffer. So once that started started happening, um, the Coast Guard rigid hull inflatable started chasing the Greenpeace zodiacs with the intent of, I guess, stopping them. Um, you know, from doing this, and <laughs> and it's it's kind of funny because the the Greenpeace zodiacs were small and maneuverable and fast, and the and the um, Coast Guard ones were weren't as maneuverable, but they were much faster. You know, they have like two hundred horsepower engine, you know, right. something. They they could go something like eighty miles an hour. I don't know, but they're super fast. Um, <clears throat> but they were having trouble. They couldn't they couldn't capture the zodiacs because whenever they caught up to one. The Greenpeace Zodiac could just make an instant 90-degree turn and get out of the way, and the Coast Guard boat would have to swing a really wide arc to, to get back in pursuit of them. So, so this is chaos. Yeah, it's, just, it's just this cat and mouse and chaos. But also what happened, too, is they kind of stopped get it, it stopped being under the, the winch for the grab sample. So we started actually just taking started samples. Yeah, you know, we just started actually sampling while this was going on. Um, it wasn't super efficient because so much was going this on. too much entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and pretty, and then eventually we, we took a few samples and pretty much stopped because it was just too much, too many boats buzzing around, too much stuff going on. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, another thing that was going on is that the the Rainbow Warrior started playing like a cat and mouse game with one of the Coast Guard cutters, where the where the Rainbow Warrior would try to either creep toward that five hundred yard buffer or pretend it was, and the Coast Guard cutter would just cut straight across its bow. And almost dare it to ram it. Oh my it. gosh! And and I don't know how close they got, but from the distance, you know, we were. It looked like they were just feet away from each other. Oh my god! Just gosh. this cat and mouse game that was going. To, you know, it's like Rainbow Warriors, probably a hundred eighty foot boat. The Coast Guard cutter was about the same size, and they were doing this, you know, this maneuvering thing. Um, so That's that was crazy. kind of. A, and for for people that are not <laughs> experienced around boats, or whatever, it's one thing to to bounce around on on Zodiacs, but with hundred foot boats, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, you can't move them on a dime. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, the, uh, the, um, all this chasing and everything was going on. And then some of the fishing boats, even after the rule came in, started, um, you know, breaking the rule, basically the buffer. And the Coast Guard actually ended up seizing two fishing boats. Whoa. And, and you know, and, and actually with, with maritime law, you know, if the Coast Guard seizes a boat, they get to keep it. Unless they decide they're going to give it back, oh my god! And gosh. there's nothing you could do. You lose your boat, you know. So, yeah. And and so they, you know, they seize boat. And as soon as they seize boats, the fishermen started backing off because they knew. Yeah, that's they, a livelihood. There's a, there a possibility they could yeah. lose their boat. Um, I'll, I'll say now it turned out the Coast Guard did give the boats back, oh, okay. but they but they they seized them. I think as a show to say, hey, you know, we're serious. We're about serious this. about this rule. <clears throat> yeah. Um, also, what was happening is, is, you know, when you communicate in the marine environment with VHF radios, those are all public frequencies. Everybody could hear what each other says. So we were trying to do a lot of kind of planning. When I say we, it's kind of the skipper of the boat, but was doing planning with the Coast Guard as to what to do and how to handle this. But the communications were all being monitored, so you couldn't really do any kind of secret planning. Sure. You know, everybody knew what was going on. No cell phones back then. <laughs> no, no cell phones. So what the Coast Guard did is said, okay, we'll give you a secure radio. And, and so this would be some kind of frequency that only certain radios could pick up. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so the way they gave it to us is they, they, they brought the helicopter out and they actually lowered a, a Coast Guard guy down to the deck of the boat with the, with the Coast Guard helicopter with the radio. And, and he, you know, gave the radio to the skipper. Oh, my gosh. And, and this was so, it was so dramatic. It was, like a, it was like a Rambo scene. You know, this guy with his big... <laughs> Orange jumpsuit and helmet, you know, being lowered, off the lowered down, and 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 and, and that's a point I learned about what it was like to be directly under a boat hovering Coast Guard helicopter. Ooh. Like it gets over the boat and it instantly blows everybody's hard hat off. Everything starts blowing all around the ship because there's oh so much wind generated. Anyway, so that happened. It's a lot of chaos for some some scientists <laughs> yeah. and grad students. And then then it turned out a few days later that some higher up in the Coast Guard said, "You cannot give a civilian a secure radio." So they actually had to come back and get it back. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that happened, um, and um, yeah, that happened. Yeah, uh, and, and and so meanwhile, all these chases were still going on, and um, the Coast Guard actually started started to figure out how to actually catch the zodiacs even though it was it, it was really hard they they still started they started catching some and the way they would do it is they instead of chasing the zodiac directly behind it they'd get two of the coast guard boats and kind of angle at a 45 degree angle from behind yeah. and like a pincher type thing uh. and they would then shockingly ram their huge ridge hold inflatables right up over the top of the Greenpeace Zodiacs just bury them. and just bury them and, and stop the boat basically. Wow. And that's how they caught that's them. That's pretty intense. Yeah. Um, so how many of these Zodiacs are zipping around? Usually about four at once, but we didn't know how many they had because when, when one got captured, they just launched another one. That's crazy. You, you know, and um, so anyway, and then, and then what happened, and this was the, the, the most surprising and exciting part, I guess, is, um, you know, was, we were kind of, every, at that point, nobody was doing stand Everybody was just on deck kind of watching what was going on. <laughs> and, um, and so all of a sudden there was, you know, these three Zodiacs buzzing around the, the Greenpeace. And um, they started, they all of a sudden, and they had the Coast Guard chasing. There was two Coast Guard boats chasing them. And they kind of all of a sudden came together and formed kind of a single file line 
heading directly, you know, toward the stern of the of the boat. We were on the Aloha, and um, we're just kind of watching. And then two, the the back two of the three zodiacs each veered off in the opposite direction, kind of at ninety degrees, and that drew the two Coast Guard boats chasing them off, you know, kind of 90 degrees away from the boat. But that one single Greenpeace Zodiac was left was still coming at us and there's nobody chasing it or nobody even monitoring it. Radical, like, <laughs> little strategies that they yeah. have. Yeah. Anyway, so that boat then um, basically rams up onto the stern of the Aloha. Remember I said the deck's really low to the water, so really easy for the nose of the Zodiac to okay. come right up on the back of the stern. And it's all that swashing water. Yeah, and right? it's just an empty, you know, there's not even a railing on the back. It's just an open back deck. And um, and there were three people on the Zodiac. Two people jumped off onto the Aloha. The other person, you know, just drove away. And so the the people that jumped off, there was a um, a, a woman um, and uh, and a and a guy. And the guy was like, I'll, I'll describe him. He was this big. I mean, he was like probably like six four, husky. He had like long blonde hair, big beard. He looked like a Viking. You know, I kind of characterized him <laughs> as a Viking. He just kind of, of course the Viking to commandeer the ship, right? <laughs> he just comes storming onto the. I mean, you know, he comes just storming. You know, running onto the back deck, and everybody was focused on him. The woman was just you know kind of off to the side, so nobody was really focused on her because this guy was just storming up the back deck as fast as he can. Just like running. Yeah, he was running. And this is a pretty big boat, pretty big back deck, so you could run, you could get up to speed. Yeah. And um, and um, we're like, what is going on? And so one one of the crew, one of the crew on the boat, who was actually a small guy, he was kind of like my size, you know, he's kind of like five eight, but kind of a wiry guy. Uh huh. He just like, you know, runs up and kind of intercepts the guy running, who's like twice his size, and he just gives him the hardest punch across the face you can imagine oh and just, just decked him with one punch just Holy shit. completely decked this guy with one punch um just clocks the yeah, screen piece yeah viking yeah and drops him <laughs> yeah completely just drops him like an mma yeah. fighter <laughs> yeah and then then a bunch of the crew kind of dive on him and hold him down and stuff um and and then they they tie him up they tie him up and and so I don't know. Wait, what, I, I so this, these like like scientists tie no, him up. No, it's the crew. The okay. scientists all. When this happened, everybody. So the scientists, scientists are like, like run for cover. No, or? we were all, we were all pretty far. We were all kind of on upper parts Spectating. of deck, looking down on the back deck, and and it was you know, and we weren't going to get involved. In they that. actually like, like what do they like hog tie the dude? Like, well, what they did, and this is the, it's like I guess the only rope was hand that was handy was the ropes that they actually used to tie the vessel up to docks. Oh, that's so these massive. are like. Two-inch diameter, like, hauser rope. So they tie him up with this two-inch diameter rope. And they just kind of wrap it around him, like, ten times and tie it, you know. And so his arms are... His feet oh. were tied up and his arms were kind of bound up. Oh, man. And then they just kind of sat him you down. You might take a picture of that. That would just I'm be sure like that classic I'm sure there's got to be pictures. But they just kind of then sat him down uh, and, and just kind of watched over him. Didn't really do anything. But meanwhile, no one was paying attention to the, to the, to the woman who, who came on board. And what she did is she climbed up the A-frame... And remember, this is about a 30 or 35 foot tall aim frame. And it has these kind of welded steel rungs on it that are like a ladder. So she climbed up, she climbed up the A-frame to, to maybe two-thirds, maybe 20 feet up off the deck. And then she chained herself to it. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't a chain. It was like one of those bicycle locks. The kind right. that you can't cut with a hacksaw or cut with bolt yeah. cutters. Um, so she locked herself um, to the ladder rung of the A-frame. Um, and how high up is this? About like, 20, she was about 20 feet up off oh the deck. Goodness. And um, 
And, and then she had on a, a full kind of Mustang suit, which is like a one-piece, really thick, jump, insulated jumpsuit, usually they're bright orange. So you couldn't really see what kind of harness she had. She must have had some kind of harness under her suit. Mm-hmm. She was able to actually hang from the lock without her hands. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so she's just and, like swinging. Yeah, so she must have had some kind of climbing harness or something on. Um, but you couldn't tell. Um, so anyway, she's locked up there. And, and anyway, it's, it starts to settle down <laughs> oh, a little gosh. bit. And we're all scratching our heads. Okay, what do we do about this person on the A-frame? What do we do? And she, you know, and, and some Coast Guard boats came and landed. Some of the higher level Coast Guard officials on the boat, and we're all everybody was talking about like how how do we deal with this? Right. What, what can we do? Oh my gosh! And um, and finally they 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 figured out a a, a plan. And and she was doing kind of like a passive resistance, like. You know, she wouldn't like if like one of the crew member climbed up and talked to her and stuff, and 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 she was just say, "I'm just here. I'm not going to resist. I'm just you know just yeah. here completely passively." So that you know, I was fine. Um, and um, finally, they 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 came up with a plan, and and so what they did is they um, sent the crew member up, and and the crew member um, had a rope over a pulley, and basically tied you know tied the rope around the woman who just really just sat there with no resistance just let him tie the rope around her and you know kind of the type of knot when you're doing like a rescue type Mm -hmm. of thing um you know tied the rope around her um and um the other end of the rope they didn't want to use a winch or anything because that might be too dangerous for the person so they they got like six guys and just said okay we want six guys on this rope to, to hold the other end of the rope but then the crew guy went up and basically cut the ladder rung so he couldn't cut the lock, but he could cut the ladder rung. Oh my god! So he gosh. cut the ladder rung and bent it out of the way, and then you could just slide, the, just lock slide off. the lock off. And then, uh, and then we lowered, you know, the the, the woman to the deck oh, of the wow. boat. And then the coast guard took them off. They got, you know, they got arrested. So they arrested the woman and yeah, the, and the, the guy you had tied yeah. up with. The... And <laughs> and actually, you know, all the zodiacs that they captured, they seized those zodiacs and they arrested those people as well. Um, but I don't think anyone really spent any time in jail. I think they were just kind of processed and, and uh-huh. let go and and even though they seized his zodiacs they eventually gave those back as well so, so for all you activists out there just just <laughs> take, take note <laughs> i'm not recommending anything but anyway <laughs> anyway so finally you know <clears throat> that that was over um and this occurs over the course of how long this like, is a day this, this a, is all this is all in one day yeah one full long day basically um, so did you get any research really? not that day really um, it was a 15 day cruise. So this is, you know, the first okay. day, um, exciting first day. Yeah. <laughs> so that all happens. I'm like, what? you know, but, but after, after that was done, things calmed down. There were no more. So the, the, the coast guard employed their capture technique. Eventually they captured all the Zodiacs, all the Greenpeace Zodiacs, at least all the ones that Greenpeace was willing to launch and get captured. It's amazing. So I think they maybe captured four altogether four. or something like that. We, we thought the boat maybe had eight or 10 on it actually. Wow, we didn't know because um, they kept launching them. No matter right, why, it's just like know? seemingly an endless yeah, supply of, yeah. of zodiacs. Um, so anyway, things calmed down. Greenpeace stayed there. We had the full contingent of Coast Guard <laughs> all around us, and 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 we were actually able to like continue to do a little bit of sampling, and um, um, and we made a decision then um, uh, because of the commotion. We had two sampling locations, as I said, one off Cape Blanc and one off Gold Beach. We said. We made a decision, let's just go down to Gold Beach and, and sample there. So that evening, 
you know, everything was kind of secured and overnight the boat just ran down the gold beach. But as it was running down the gold beach, um, and this is at night, it's pitch black, um, and there's, you know, there's lights on the boat that light up kind of a, the water near the boat. There was, this, there was always a Greenpeace Zodiac just at the edge of the lighting that you could just see behind us, following us down. Oh, my God. And I assume the Rainbow Warrior was, you know, way Somewhere off in the distance it. following as well. Because they wouldn't let the Zodiac just go by itself like that. Yeah. Um, and so we're like, oh, is this going to happen again at Gold Beach? And, and, um, and, and then we, you know, we all went to bed, you know. And, and um, the next morning we, we, you know, got up and started, in a, you know, seeing what the situation was at Gold Beach. And, and the Rainbow Warrior was gone. It packed up. I mean, it... it, it it, so it was basically a one-day protest, right? Um, and and they had left, and and then the gold gold beach was uneventful. I mean, we just started sampling. Fishing fleet didn't come. Yeah, out no, no, that. it was kind of it was kind of over with at that point. So so we sampled, and um, but but like the coast guard for a while stayed with us, and we had all these boats, and there was one point where we were going to do a uh, some some of the seabird sampling of counting uh-huh. birds. And we, we, we had a Zodiac on our boat, too. <laughs> so we, we launched that to do a seabird survey to go off, you know, a mile or so away from the boat. And while the boat was doing other sampling, mm-hmm. um, we would do that. And there was three of us on the boat. We had a seabird biologist and, 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 and one guy driving the boat. And I was a data recorder. I had a clipboard to write down the data as a seabird biologist called out data. Anyway, um, we set up for this transect and we're communicating with the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard decides for, they need to escort us on this transect. So we had like a major Coast Guard cutter, probably, you know, a like thousand a foot boat. Yeah, a thousand yeah. yards directly in front of us. We had a smaller Coast Guard boat, maybe 500 yards in front of us. Then we had two of the Coast Guard rigid hold inflatables kind of on each side of us. Oh my gosh. And we're like, we didn't see any seabirds. You're like, where are the seabirds? <laughs> and we had to tell the Coast Guard, we, we had to tell them, I think we're fine. You know, we're, we're okay. you don't need to escort us. <laughs> and so finally they said, okay. And then they went away and we were able to, we were able to do our work. But it That's was kind of funny. at first, it was like, this is not a very useful right. seabird transect. Um, but anyway, we were able to actually get all of our biological sampling done. Um, the, the 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 geological sampling was much less successful. The, it turned out that that VibraCore device, you couldn't work it if there was any kind of sea state at all. It was really only workable in, in really flat, calm, calm water. Waters. And what would happen is, um, it's you know it's kind of attached yeah. by the boat. It would actually break because mm-hmm. the movement of the boat and such would actually break the core. And so they would. They, they never got the full depth core. They got some cores, but they were never able to get the, the full depth um, core. And in fact, the, a lot of the geologists were coming to us and, and kind of borrowing some of the sediment we got from our grab samples. So they oh, could really? use it. Yeah, and that was like an idea. Of yeah, there were, there. a lot of them didn't have anything to do, so we were like, okay, we'll give you some of our sediment. That's <laughs> and, funny. And um, anyway, we we completed the the fifteen days and. At least I, I think from the biology standpoint, we got a lot of good information. We got mm-hmm. a lot of benthic and fauna and, and fish information and um, learned a lot. You know, one thing that was striking to me, um, we were sampling mostly soft sediment, uh, you know, sandy type environments. But some of the environments were kind of a coarse gravel bottom. And um, I usually thought of um, kind of benthic and fauna worms and amphipods and things like that as being really abundant in sandy or muddy environments and maybe not so abundant in gravel, but it turns out 
you pull up this gravel and it's just filled with with worms and other invertebrates. And, oh, wow! You know, pretty probably pretty important food sources for, sure. for fish. Rich, rich ecology. Yeah, yeah, and and so that that was pretty interesting. And um, well, and for the for the Greenpeace activists and uh, uh, the the fishing fleet down there, I mean, today we can say there's there's, there's a prohibition on plastic yeah. mineral surveys. Maybe that has something. Who knows to do with the rich e- ecological information that was garnered from that trip, yeah or, and yeah um, and, and 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 also the concern i mean yeah, sure you know, we had we had the we had the same concern about the impacts mm-hmm. of of that kind of activity as as the fishing fleet would have and as as greenpeace had and you know so i think it's a combination of all that concern that, that probably led to that sure that led to the, the other thing that the the mineral people did find out is that the deposits weren't nearly rich enough to actually be economically viable as mining sure. anyway so that that was kind of i guess a, you might call it a good result from that you know sure they, you know so that that actually kind of dropped all the interest in, in offshore mining for for those areas did they ever were they ever able to core deep no or? they never got deep enough but they got enough that they felt like um enough information that that the that the kind of concentrations and amounts were just not not there not coming even close to what they mm. needed to be it's interesting yeah so, well hopefully our states and to the north and to the south will maybe heed some yeah some yeah. some uh, understanding from oregon's history on yeah uh, mineral research and so so that was yeah so that was my my new as a new biologist at od and w i you know maybe i thought do all research projects? Do all? <laughs> Go so back ever, Right. Have you ever had anything nearly no. as exciting since no. then? I mean, are you... Most other research awesome projects, work. you go out, you, you, you do your, your work that you plan, and, you, and you're done, and you come And they're never... They never go smooth, though. You know, Dave talked about a lot of tools and, and stuff that the researchers use, and actually my girlfriend works for, for some of the marine program here that does that type of work, and... I often hear more about the failures of those yeah. those devices and how they're just constantly trying to work on them. And so there's a lot of yeah, there's engineering, a, there's a lot of and tinkering that has to troubleshooting, be yeah. and to to get the the imager that we do get uh, takes a lot of work. So, well, Dave, thanks. That was an amazing story. Okay, yeah, and I'm, I'm, it's good history too, <laughs> and actually pretty interesting. I think for for maybe some of our Northern California and our Washington folks that I that I work with because they're actually working on plaster mineral. Um, rulemaking and stuff like mm-hmm. that now and so it's just kind of a fun story and a rich rich history to to your work with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife and then Dave how many just just so our listeners know that you're a seasoned surfer and you're serious about it how many logged surf sessions do you have at South Beach um it's about 900 about 900 <laughs> and when you log by logged what do you do you you, you track every well month? I I um I record um you know the typical things: wind, speed, direction, um, swell. You know, size and period. And then I have, and then I have my own system of rating. The pinky rating, is yeah. That, is that what so they call the, it? the the system is lousy, okay, no, <laughs> yeah, lousy, okay, medium, good, and perfect. Oh. So it's a five part rating. Out of those nine hundreds, I think I think I have maybe five perfects. Oh wow! Yeah, so I'm strict on the perfect part. So have you run any you know data analysis? I have not. This? I have not done data analysis. Okay, on, I should. As a as a researcher, but the ra- the rating is my rating, right? It's That's not. Right. It's not. It, so the ratings, uh, you know, 
But for somebody who's served with you for the past decade, which uh, <laughs> I, I could safely say that I, I, I have been out and seen your wave selection days, and uh, I would I would take your rating. Okay, I good. would. I would. Yeah, the only caveat on my rating is that like. If it could be actually a really perfect wave, but it's way too big that, for me to surf, I, uh, would, I wouldn't rate that as perfect. Okay, because I, well, I probably wouldn't even go out. Right. <laughs> well, you 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 yeah. you probably are about the same level as I am, and 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 uh, when it's too much, and so I would say that okay. it probably worked for me, and probably worked for a lot of our listeners out there. Anyhow, thanks so much, Dave. That was sure. an awesome story. Um, and then folks want to learn more about Dave's work here at the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. I encourage you guys to check out the Marine program. Uh, I mentioned the Oregon Marine Reserve's website. You can find out information there, but you can also just go to, um, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife's, uh, regular website, click on the Marine program and you can see all about the different, different types of work that they do here, characterizing our ocean, managing our, uh, ocean resources and fish species, uh, Thanks so much, Dave. All right. Thank you.